Welcome to the James River Church Podcast. You're about to hear another inspirational message from Pastor John Lindell, lead pastor at James River Church. It's our prayer that this message is an encouragement and blessing to your life. Well, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 25. We're going to be looking at Acts chapter 25 and 26, where the title of the message is The ABCs of Sharing Your Faith. The ABCs of Sharing Your Faith. A 2022 study by LifeWay Research and Evangelism Explosion found that only 38% of Christians shared how to become a believer with a friend or family member in the last six months. And just 34% invited someone they didn't know to church. The survey found that while 39% of Christians are willing to share their faith, only a fraction of that 39% is eager to do so. Worse yet, 29% of the Christians said they are neutral about sharing their faith. 18% of the Christians said they are reluctant about sharing their faith. And 11% of the Christians said they are indifferent about sharing their faith. Which means that 58% of Christians are either neutral or have a negative feeling about sharing their faith. This is compounded and will be increasingly so in the years to come as the primary value in most of public education is tolerance of everything but Christianity. So that what happens is you can talk about anything, just don't talk about Christianity. Furthermore, the public education system, I'm not down on public education if you're a teacher, but I am down on this. The idea that somehow you don't have a right to share what you believe just because it makes somebody uncomfortable. Christianity at its heart is about evangelism. Jesus, the last command we have in Scripture in Matthew chapter 28 and verse 19 is, therefore go and make disciples. We as Christians are called to evangelism, to make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you and surely I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Those two verses are not called the great suggestion. They're not the great option. They're the great commission. Jesus calls us to go. One final statistic from that survey pointed out that 66% of self-described Christians report they are not familiar with any methods of telling others about Jesus. That's why a message like this is so very important. If you're going to take notes on anyone, you ought to take it on this message. Because in this passage, Paul gives us a step 
by step example of how to share your faith. I hope you will write it down or you'll be on the app and you can follow right along and highlight and add your own thoughts. Now, before we look at how to share your faith, I want to give a little background, historical background. I love history, so it's very easy for me to uh, uh, just dive deep in this stuff. Paul's going to be sharing his faith with a group of people, influential people, and the Bible names three of those people. There is a king by the name of Agrippa. There is a woman by the name of Bernice. And there is a governor, a new governor. Last week we talked about Felix. This governor's name is Festus. So let me just briefly talk about them because I think you will find it very interesting. And then as we read what Paul does with them, I think it will bring it alive for you. Agrippa was the great-grandson of Herod the Great. He is the king who in Matthew chapter 2 slaughtered the infants. His father, the grandson of Herod the Great, Agrippa I, is the king that is mentioned in Acts chapter 12. Remember, he arrested James and had him beheaded. And then he arrested Peter. By the end of Acts 12, he is in a situation where he doesn't give glory to God and he is struck down and eaten by worms. This Agrippa had five children. His first child, a son by the name of Drusus, died before he was ever a teenager. Then there was Agrippa, his second son. There was Bernice, his daughter, and they were one year apart, all from the same mother. There was Mariamne, and the youngest was a woman by the name of Drusilla, not to be confused with the Drusilla we read about in the last chapter. However, she was renowned as a beautiful woman. Agrippa was about seven when Jesus was crucified. He was, in his early teens, sent off to Rome to be educated, where he became friends with a future emperor who was known as, when he became emperor, Emperor Claudius. When Agrippa's father died, Agrippa, because of his relationship with Claudius, was appointed king over a small part of Agrippa I's kingdom, and gradually he assumed control over all of it. Bernice, his sister, who was a year younger, was first married when she was 13, and it had three marriages, all of which ended by the age of 22. She moved to Rome to live with Agrippa following the end of her third marriage, and from then on had an incestuous relationship with her brother. As shocking as things could be in the Roman Empire and in Rome, the Romans could not believe it. She was known, it was known throughout the city, it's mentioned by several Roman historians and by uh, Flavius Josephus, a Jewish historian, all of them document the incestual relationship that existed between Agrippa and his sister. Festus, who was the governor for just a very short time in Judea from AD 59 to AD 62, was married to Bernice's sister, the pretty one, Drusilla, who is renowned as a beautiful woman. 
So what you have in Acts chapter 25 and 26 is the Apostle Paul, and he is going to make his defense to Agrippa, a brother and a sister, Agrippa and Bernice, and their brother-in-law, Festus, and their sister, Festus' wife. Let's pick it up, Acts 25. The next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp. This word pomp there is, is Fantasia, and we often think of Mickey Mouse and all that with Fantasia, but in the ancient world, it had a different, a different use. Um, it's only used one time in, in the New Testament, and it's only used here. The next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great Fantasia. In other words, what he's telling us, what Luke is saying is, is their entrance into this hall with all the government officials was so bizarre, so shocking, uh, let's just say you would have had to been there. That it was, it was shocking by everybody's standard. In other words, they're coming in and there is certainly style, there is certainly wealth, there is everything ostentatious about the presentation of themselves to the governor, their brother-in-law, and all of his officials, and they entered the audience room with the high-ranking officers and the leading men of the city. Verse 23, we read on, at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. I want you to think about this. You've got a governor, you've got Agrippa and Bernice, and they're doing their thing, and they're flaunting everything about their persona and their wealth and their position and their privilege, and they're doing it in a really bizarre way. And then you have Paul. History describes Paul as short, bow-legged, bald, with a hooked nose, wearing very plain clothing. And you can imagine the contrast there as you have all of these dignitaries and you have some, some really flashy people there and it's almost like Luke is contrasting this. You've got Agrippa and Bernice and all their Fantasia and, and the governor and then there's Paul. Look at it in verse 24. Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man. It's almost like, can you believe it? I mean... This is the guy who is the troublemaker? This is the guy who is stirring up riots all over the world? This is the guy that we're coming to adjudicate his case? Verse 24 goes on, the whole community has petitioned me about him in Jerusalem and here in Caesarea, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. I found he had done nothing deserving of death, and he could have just as well add, but I didn't have the courage to release him. But because he made his appeal to the emperor, I decided to send him to Rome. So Paul's a Roman citizen, and when Festus first meets him, Festus is going to do the Jews a favor and take Paul back to Jerusalem. The well, last time the Jews had made a vow to assassinate Paul, Paul says, listen, I should be tried before, before Caesar's court. I'm a Roman citizen. I appeal to Caesar. So now at that point, Paul has a one-way ticket to Rome. Nobody else can judge him. Nobody else can condemn him. Nobody else can punish him. He is going to Caesar himself where he will be tried. But a but Festus doesn't know what to say to Caesar. 
So he says, I found he'd done nothing wrong, but because he made his appeal to the emperor, I decided to send him to Rome. But I have nothing definite to write to his majesty about him. Therefore, I brought him here before all of you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that as a result of this investigation, I may have something to write. In other words, I'm going to look crazy or silly if I don't have some summary paragraph to write on Paul. Now, I want you to understand something. Paul does not have to appear before this court. He's a Roman citizen. He only has to appear before Caesar. He's made his appeal. It's now official. He could say, I'm not going to appear before you because if I do, and I, everything I say can and will be used against me. So he could say, you know what? I'm not going to appear before you. I don't have to talk to you. He could have said, you know what? You don't want to hear from me. I don't want to talk to you, and left it at that. But what did he do? He goes. Why? Because here's Paul, and Paul in his heart knows everybody deserves a chance to hear the gospel. Everybody. People who seem interested in the gospel and people who don't appear to have any interest at all in the gospel. I want to ask you, what would you have done? How would you have felt about Agrippa and Bernice and Festus and Drusilla and the others? Would you have felt that no matter what it costs me, they have the right to hear the gospel? Not only do they have the right to hear the gospel, but I have a message that they would want. You say, but I'd be afraid I'd look goofy. Paul's not worried about how he looks. He's worried about people going to hell. This is what motivates him. We all need to reclaim in our thinking the terror of hell, the permanence of hell, the horrific nature of hell. People at times say, well, at least if I go to hell, uh, I'll be there with my friends like hell's going to be some big party. That's not what the Bible says. Jesus calls hell a place of outer darkness. In other words, it's you out there alone, tormented forever. Won't be you with your friends. C.S. Lewis said, no madman in his wildest flight of insanity can begin to grasp the terror of one second in hell. Do you realize that no matter what people have going on, no matter what kind of facade they have, no matter what they look like, if they look interested or don't look interested, do you realize if they don't know Jesus, they're going to go to an eternal hell? Furthermore, do you realize that for some people, their encounter with you may be the last time they have an opportunity to hear the gospel before they die? Here is Festus, we know this. He will die two years after he leaves Judea. Paul lives with this urgency that everybody has a right to know, everybody ought to know, that it would help everybody to know about Jesus. 
I'm just simply saying that when I hear 58% of believers are indifferent or, or uninterested in sharing Christ, something is wrong. They don't understand the reality of heaven and hell. They don't understand that people have one shot this life, and that's it. When you die, there's no do-overs. When, when your life ends, that's it. And all of that should motivate within us a compelling, driving desire to share Christ. With that as a backdrop, let me just give you the ABCs of sharing your faith. Number one, A, assume people are interested. Sometimes the thing that keeps us from sharing with people is we're, we're too inclined to look at the cover, uh, to look at the outside, to look at them and see the facade and to say, well, you know, they don't look like they're really in need. They don't look like they have any problems. They don't look like they'd be interested. They look like they have it all together. Or we're, we're fooled by a gruff exterior. Or we think, you know what? They would never. But we're forgetting in all of that thinking on our end that you and I can't see their heart. We don't know what's going on inside their life. We don't know the hurts. We don't know the thoughts. We don't know the searching. We don't know the spiritual moments where God has come down and revealed himself to them in a dream, in a thought, in a conversation, in a book they've been reading as they've watched somebody else. We don't know. That's why we have to assume that people are interested. That's why when we get the chance, we got to take the chance. Bill Bright, one of the greatest evangelists of the last century, Campus Crusade uh, for Christ, writes this, although I've shared Christ personally with many thousands of people through the years, I'm a rather reserved person and I do not always find it easy to witness. But I've made this my practice and I urge you to do the same. Assume that whenever you're alone with another person for more than a few moments, you are there by divine appointment to explain to that person the love and forgiveness he can know only through faith in Jesus Christ. You have interaction with somebody, you have opportunity. You, you're with somebody for a few moments, that's a divine appointment. God has placed you there to share your faith. Acts chapter 26 and verse 1, Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul motioned with his hand and began his defense. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews. And especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Here's what Paul does. He starts by assuming that they're interested. If he goes by what he sees on the outside, he's going to think there's not one chance in a million they want to hear this. But Paul says, you know what? God knows what's going on in the heart, and God's been preparing the heart long before I ever showed up, and God is going to speak to them. And he assumes he has something that will help them. If we're going to win people to Christ, we have to assume, first of all, that they're interested, even if they don't look interested. We have to assume God's been working in their heart long before we ever met them. We have to assume that we have something they desperately need because we know we do. 
assume people are interested. B, build a bridge to your audience. Paul built a bridge to them by starting where they're at. They thought Christianity was something that ought to be opposed. So watch what Paul does. This is so interesting. I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem on the authority of the chief priests. I put many of the saints in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished and tried to force them to blaspheme. In my obsession against them, I even went to foreign cities to persecute them. Paul was saying at one time, I was as anti-Christian as any of you are. What he's doing is he's building a bridge. He's saying, if you're opposed to Christianity, I understand why you would be. Listen, not everybody you meet is going to be a sinner on a silver platter. You're like, just like, please tell me how I can get saved. That may happen. But there are some people who have been hurt by Christians. Some people have been hurt by the church. There are some people who grew up in an abusive situation that did the abuse under the guise of being Christians. You have to start where people are at. You have to be open to the fact some people just simply have never seen a real Christian. Some people have never really known the real message. You have to listen. You have to engage people to figure out where they're from. Paul knows where they're from. But if you never met somebody and you don't know anything about them, find common ground. Begin building a bridge. C, conversion. Tell them about your conversion to Christ. We need to let people know how we came to Christ. Let them hear your story. He says, you know what? I, I was so bad I was trying to get people to blaspheme. On one of these journeys, when I was going to persecute people, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest about Nuno King. As I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And then I asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus. Whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up, stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen of me and what I will show you. Now watch what he says next. This is very interesting. I'll rescue you from your own people, from the Gentiles. I'm sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so they might receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Listen, here's what he's saying is, when you don't know Christ, you're living in spiritual darkness. When you don't, when you don't know Christ, you're blind to spiritual realities. There's a spiritual world that is more real than the physical world. There's a spiritual world that's more important than the physical world, and we know that because this physical world will be gone someday. The spiritual world will remain. There are things happening in the spiritual world, and Paul is mentioning this. You know, there are some people who have not yet been saved because the enemy simply has done everything he could to blind them to the truth. 
We have to help people. Here he is. He's talking about his own conversion. But as he talks about his own conversion, he's also talking about spiritual realities that affect them. They must have been squirming in their seats. They knew about their sin. They knew what the Old Testament said. They knew what their consciences were saying. And here is Paul, and he's saying, listen, Agrippa, I don't care where you've been. I was a big sinner too. But Agrippa, listen, there's a God who loves you so much. He'll forgive you. He can change your life. I've experienced after it after all that I've done, and you can too. He talks about his conversion. He talks about his change. That leads us to D, the difference that Christ can make in your life. Look at it. Verse 19, so then King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. Let me just pause and say one of the most basic ingredients of being a Christian is obedience to Christ. Paul says, from the moment my life was changed, I've done everything I could to be obedient. Have you? Did Jesus Christ coming into your life make a difference? Did it change your life? Did it change the way you talked? Did it change the way you live? Did it change the values of your life, what was most important and what you desired? Did it change the desires of your life? Do you understand that when we receive him as Savior, we receive him as Lord? If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, Paul says in Romans, and believe in your heart God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, what's that saying? Jesus, you're in charge. You're, you're King, you're Lord, you're the ruler of my life, and I'm going to do what you ask. Jesus says in Luke, I think it's 646, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do the things I ask? I mean, obedience is so important. If... You have an obedience optional Christianity. May I suggest to you, you probably don't have Christianity at all? Because you're Lord of your life, not Him. You do what you want. So you had an encounter with Christ, but let's not, let's not have you in a situation where you're fooling yourself, thinking that because you had an encounter with Christ, you're saved when nothing about your life would give any witness to that. The Bible puts it this way. James says, faith without works is dead. Somebody says, I have faith, you have works. And James says, well, can such a faith save a person? If there's nothing about your life that indicates the transformation of your life, then let me just cut to the chase. You're not saved. And that ought to alarm you. This is why it's important for Christians to settle and for people when they come to Christ to settle. He's Lord and whatever he asks, I'm going to do. So I remember when it came to baptism because I'd been raised in a mainline denomination and was baptized as an infant and that was important to my parents. 
So when I gave my heart to Christ and they asked me to be baptized, I was like, well, hey, I'm, I already did that. I'm an overachiever. I did it before I got saved. <laughs> and I knew what my parents would think when I said I need to get baptized. But if I told them that, they'd be like, what? You already have been. So I knew all that was, but at that moment, what happened, and I'm really thankful for it, I was dating Debbie, and Tim took me out, and we sat down, and he just showed me in the Bible what the Bible says about baptism and what the Bible says about obedience, and left me really no choice. If you're a Christian, that's what you're going to do. You're going to get baptized. It's also what you're going to do if you're going to date my daughter. No, he didn't say that. <laughs> he could have, but he didn't. <laughs> All that to say... That if you're telling me I'm a Christian, but I don't want to get baptized, hmm, that's problematic. You need to be baptized. That's basic. And if you won't do that, what else won't you do? And how can you at that moment say you're a Christian when you just do what you want? Because that's not what Christians do. They follow Jesus. Jesus said, if anyone would follow me, he must, what do you know what the first thing is in Luke? Deny yourself. Say no to you so you can say yes to him. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. That's Christianity. And if you've opted into another kind of Christianity, it's not biblical saving Christianity. Paul says, I was obedient. And then he goes and he adds this. I love this, verse 22. I've had God's help to this very day. Wow. You know what happens when you give your heart to Christ? When you're walking with him, you've got his help. Paul says, I've had his help all along the way. He's saying, listen, Agrippa, I know sometimes in your, and when you're all by yourself, you feel like you're all alone and you feel like you, you, you're you're." feel like life's spinning out of control, but I want you to know there's a God who loves you and would love to walk with you through all of life's challenges and decisions and circumstances. And knowing Jesus has resulted in me knowing that I have his help all the time. In fact, let me just say, whatever your testimony is, whatever difference Jesus has made in your life, I had one couple who told me, if it hadn't been for James River, we wouldn't be married today. It changed how we did life. It changed our life. It, it, it drew our hearts closer to Christ, which drew us closer together as a couple. That's the way it works. Knowing Jesus makes a massive difference. E, this is it. The A, B, C, D, and E of sharing your faith. Extend an invitation. Verse 24. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You are out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning has driven you insane. Paul, you're nuts. But notice, Festus' outburst didn't stop Paul. Ever had somebody say, you're crazy. 
Thank you for saying that, but let me just finish what I was saying. You know, that's, that's Paul. He's just like, let's go. Didn't silence him. Didn't make him feel as though he didn't have anything to say. Quite the opposite. Look at it in verse 25. I'm not insane, most excellent Festus. I love that. What I am saying is true, and it's reasonable. Listen, just settle in your heart. The gospel's true. Festus can't argue with this. Paul's saying, listen, there are thousands of people in your kingdom who either had a miracle at the hands of Jesus and the disciples, or they saw a miracle at the hands of Jesus and the disciples. There are hundreds of people in your kingdom who saw the resurrected Christ. What I'm saying about a dead man who was raised to life is true. It's true. And it's reasonable. It makes sense. And Festus can't say, no, it's not true, and no, it's not reasonable. He knows it is. The king's familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. I'm convinced that none of this has happened, has escaped his notice, because it was not done in a corner. The gospel is rational. The gospel is relational. The gospel is biblical. Look at it, verse 27. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. And Agrippa knew what Paul was saying was true. And Paul adds, if you believe the prophets, then you have to know that they said there's a Messiah coming. And Agrippa knows right where this is headed. Look at it in verse 28. He said to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? What's the answer to that question? Yes, I do. <laughs> do you know what Paul's doing here? He's forcing Agrippa to make a decision. I'm just saying, this is not sales where you close the deal. So I don't want to, there's a similarity, but it's very different. Because people aren't buying anything. They're receiving a free gift. But Paul's making Agrippa responsible for what he's heard. Agrippa doesn't need to think about it. He doesn't need to go home and weigh it out. He's bringing him to a point of decision. Close with this. D.L. Moody, great evangelist in the 1800s, latter part of the 1800s, preached to thousands, saw thousands converted in, in the major cities of the world, the U.S. and Europe. He was preaching one night in Chicago on the claims of Christ. And he told the people to go home and think about what he had said and to come back next week. But that night, a fire broke out that burned Chicago to the ground. It was the great Chicago fire where tens of thousands of people lost their life. People who he had said could have time to think about it never had another chance. And that haunted Moody. And he said, I'll never give people that chance again. That's why, that's why the scripture says today is the day of salvation. Now is the appointed hour. 
there's an urgency to the gospel. You know, you read this story and you wonder if Agrippa was ever convicted again. Festus would die in less than two years without responding to the gospel. And the tragedy is that they heard the good news of salvation from one of the most anointed people the world has ever seen. And they rejected it. And they lost their soul. It didn't have to be that way. They could have come to Christ. They could have made a decision. Acts 26 could have ended differently, and history could have left us a different record than the convoluted record we have of Agrippa and Bernice, and it only gets worse. What will you do with Jesus? And if you're a Christian, let me ask you this, who will you share Jesus with? You have in your hand an invite card to Sizzling Summer. This is a conversation starter. This is a way to reach out to people who do not know Jesus and to draw them to something special in the church. But I want to encourage you, whatever you need, whatever you have to do, share Christ with people around you. It's not, it's not hard. And don't say, well, I'm not the kind of person. Listen, Bill Bright says he was an introvert, but he shared Christ with millions of people. And millions came to know Christ. Trust God. He thinks you can do it. Because he's going to help you do it.